As the number of COVID-19 cases continues to rise, public health officials are working hard to stop the spread of the disease one phone call at a time. Hi, I'm calling from the Massachusetts Department of Health. Do you have a minute to talk? It's a method called contact tracing. My job is to call people with COVID-19 and ask them questions about who they were in contact with recently. Right now, this requires hours of phone calls with infected individuals and all the people that person could have exposed. The goal is to warn people who might have the disease and tell them to self-isolate so they don't spread it to anyone else. In a recent conversation, you were identified as someone who could be at risk. But now, considering that most people have smartphones... You're constantly leaving these digital traces as you move, and there's the potential to then leverage that as a more accurate way of getting this information. In this episode, we weigh the health benefits of contact tracing with the potential threats it poses to our privacy. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus, a conversation with Northeastern University's groundbreaking researchers. We connect what's going on in their labs to what's going on in your life. We're News at Northeastern reporters Emily Arnson and Aria Bracci. I'm Krista Wilson, a professor in the Corey College of Computer Sciences at Northeastern University. So right now, the U.S. is using the analog phone call interview method of contact tracing, but that's probably going to change soon. Can you explain what the U.S. is doing to incorporate cell phone data into contact tracing? There are specific companies like Google that have put location information out now into the public domain. That information is not useful for contract tracing at all. So you could see things like, is New York obeying the stay-at-home order? And just in general, like, what does rush hour traffic look like? You know, if it's not there, then people are obeying. But it tells you nothing about individuals, their movements, and who they were around. There have been Other reports that, for example, the government was looking at buying data from either cell phone providers or from advertising providers that also do location tracking, and that would be at the individual level, which could potentially be useful for contact tracing, although both those kinds of data have, have issues that make them not particularly precise. Can you explain what some of those issues are? Yeah. So for example, the commercial companies that do location tracking, that's typically implemented in apps. So you download an app, that app is ad supported typically. So there's a library in the background that's keeping track of where you go so they can then target ads based on your location. That works better on older phones. Both Android and iPhone have gotten a lot more strict about allowing location access in the background. So it used to be that those apps could just stay on forever, constantly getting your GPS and it would be very accurate. Now that's no longer the case. If you have a newer phone, those apps really can only get your location when you use the app, which then means, you know, unless you're like walking around using that app all the time, this location trace that they're getting from you uh, is not going to be accurate enough for contact tracing. And then, of course, there's the the privacy dimension to this, which is that you did not know those third-party companies were tracking you in the first place, let alone that the government would then go buy it and use it for, you know, some some purpose that you could have never thought of. Right. And so that's why Google and Apple have launched this new initiative that would allow for contact tracing without tracking people's locations. Can you talk about what Apple and Google are developing? So Google and Apple just announced that they're working on a new you know, contact tracing API that they're going to try to push into everyone's phones. And one of the reasons they want to do that themselves is 
their framework can be running 24 seven, right? Cause it's their operating system. Um, so it would then be, you know, very, very accurate because it's on all the time. And before we move on to how this is going to work, can you explain what API is? So the, the API is just kind of the underlying functionality. Okay, so it's like the framework of what the phone is capable of doing, right? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, so once they do change the API, how is contact tracing going to work? So the way this works is your phone has Bluetooth. The phone is going to keep the Bluetooth on all the time, and it's going to be broadcasting a unique ID. Now, that ID is going to change every couple hours or let's say every day. So as you're walking around, your phone is just broadcasting this unique number. At the same time, your Bluetooth on your phone is also listening. So as you're walking around, you're going to hear these little ID beacons from everyone around you, and your phone's going to record them. So at this point, your phone now has this record of these are all the IDs I saw from people around me. But you don't know who those people are, right? You just have these unique IDs. So then the next step is, let's say that someone gets COVID-19. You would go and get tested. And then an approved person, like a doctor, would submit that to a database maintained by Google and Apple. And then your phone would periodically check that database. So the database would say, uh, user ID X got COVID. And now your phone can look and see, these are all the IDs I've seen over the last two weeks. Did I ever see that ID? You know, that would indicate that you were close to that person. Maybe you were exposed. So Google and Apple are going to develop this API and push it out to all of our phones. Um, but then it's actually up to app providers to use that API. So it's not like Google and Apple are going to start contact tracing everyone by default. It just makes your phone capable of contact tracing. And then the hope would be that someone like the, you know, the CDC would then develop an app, release it, we would all install it and opt in, and now we can all do this together. So the idea with this Bluetooth system is that we can trace people's interactions without tracing their locations because of what you said earlier, how it would be a huge privacy issue to track people's locations. Um, but why is it more of an infringement on your privacy if someone's tracking your GPS location versus your Bluetooth interactions? Like if if your Bluetooth pings another person at a specific time, can't that be traced back to a location? So it can. So this is where the details of this Bluetooth implementation start to matter it's not recording GPS coordinates associated with the pings. So it's harder, but not impossible to track down locations of individuals. So for example, I mean, let, let's just say that I was infected and my phone pinged yours. If the authorities found me and said, where were you, you know, yesterday? And I said, oh, well, I was at Trader Joe's. Right now they would then know, okay, anyone who got that ping was also at Trader Joe's. And they can go from there, right? You can start to de-anonymize people. But just based on the Bluetooth and what's being recorded, you can't tell anything. You have to talk to the person and get more information from them. Okay. So it's just recording the interactions between devices. Or it's tracing the contact between devices, but not necessarily where those devices are. That's right. From my understanding, what contact tracing is right now is if someone tests positive, they get a call from some public health worker 
And that public health worker says, okay, who have you been in contact with? Then they go and contact all of those people and say, okay, quarantine for 14 days. There is no anonymity with that. Could this app provide more anonymity? Not really. Because ultimately, there's still an individual who's going to be notified that they're infected. You don't necessarily know who you were in proximity to. So you don't know who you got it from. But the central database does. Whoever's administering this will almost certainly be uh, linking it to names and addresses. Right. So what I'm thinking about right now is the way that it's working is if you go to get your hair cut, for example, and the person who cuts your hair has COVID-19, and then that person is required to say who they came in contact with in the past however many days, and then you get a phone call if you recently got your hair cut saying, hey, your hairdresser could have given you COVID-19, that seems a lot more of um, an infringement on someone's privacy than if you were to look at codes in an app, because I'm just thinking of like the stigma of knowing that your hairdresser could have given you COVID-19 versus if you just saw like, oh, on this day at this location, this code could have exposed me. So that's true. You know, the app version, you don't know it's your hairdresser, but the app version is also more problematic in the sense that if we think you were exposed from your hairdresser, it's super likely you got it, right? That's an intimate exchange with that individual. The app doesn't have that kind of granularity. You know, It knows that you were near the hairdresser for some period of time, but not that their hands were all over you. Um, so the way the app works is it's looking at the amount of time you spent near an infected ID, but also the number of infected IDs you were near. And then it has some kind of threshold. You were there for 20 minutes, or you were near four infections, it's likely that you have it. But but that's a trade-off. And you were saying earlier that this will be an opt-in system because ultimately it's up to the individual to download the app. So if you don't opt in, obviously you don't know if you're coming in contact with infected people, but does it go the other way too? Like if, if you don't opt in, other people don't know if you're infected also? So this is one of the primary problems with this digital approach, that it is ultimately going to be opt-in. So in order for you know your phone and my phone to detect that we're in proximity and record that information, we would both have to have the app installed and active. Um, and there's even some question that we, we might have to have the same app. Right? There could be competing contact tracing apps that might not work together. This is one of the reasons why the, the word of mouth survey approach is not going to go away. Uh, anyone who hasn't installed the app is invisible. Anyone who's not traveling with their phone is invisible. You know, anyone who isn't affluent enough to own a modern smartphone is invisible. Many of the people who are most vulnerable are completely left out of this digital system. So right now, this is obviously in the public's best interest, but what kind of precedents could this set for the future? Yeah, so one problematic thing is that the government could require you to install the app. You know, su such a thing has never happened in this country, right? A mandate that you install software um, and there's concern that that's a step towards mandating all kinds of software, maybe for good ends, but maybe for problematic ones, like just mass monitoring. You know, another issue is that, you know, right now we arguably want this kind of digital trace location data for health reasons, but it could also be used for, you know, law enforcement purposes. It could be used to, you know, try to track who your associations are. If they think you're a political activist or you're a journalist meeting with sources and all of a sudden you are being compelled to compromise who you were near. So this data could be used for all kinds of things. 
Could you just uh, parse that out a little bit more, how it could be used by law enforcement? Sure. So let's say that uh, we know that a crime was committed at this store at this time. You could look at then who the IDs of the phones that were around, and then you start working backwards. You can start pinging the phones that were there essentially to disclose, hey, you, you were also in the store at that time. Or let's say that someone gets arrested, right? They have this list on their phone now of all the IDs that they were nearby. Right? That could potentially then be used to track associates. Given the anonymity built into this, the contact tracing system, if this data is more or less useful than other sources of location data, like cell phone tracking, it's not exactly clear if it's better or worse. But it is one more way in which you know, power now has the ability to know who you're around and where you were. And this kind of phenomenon has happened in the past, right? Where some kind of crisis warrants a radical response and people are willing to make those sacrifices because it's necessary at the time. But once the crisis is over, that response just sort of becomes the new norm. Can you talk about some instances where that has happened in the past? We've been through these kind of crazy situations in the past and seeing what it can do to civil liberties, like the Patriot Act after 9-11. This law will give intelligence and law enforcement officials important new tools. Today, the president signed a big new anti-terrorism bill that would expand the government's ability to track down terrorists, but at some cost. It allows any law enforcement officials to skirt a U.S. citizen's Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable search and seizure. Those kinds of capabilities don't go away. You know, so to the extent that we're being asked to implement this kind of you know, tracking on our phones and normalize this level of surveillance, it shouldn't be the opportunity to normalize things like cell triangulation writ large and give governments that kind of, of power, just carte blanche. And do you have any suggestions for how we could stave that off? I would just ask everyone to stay you know, politically active in November. You know, before this happens, that did seem like there was effort on Capitol Hill for comprehensive privacy regulation, um, sort of mirroring what we're seeing with GDPR in Europe um, and the CCPA in California. Sorry, can you just so explain the, what those are? Yeah, so GDPR is the General Data Protection Regulation. And it's the law in Europe that says if data is going to be collected about you, you need to offer affirmative consent. You have to be informed about what it's going to be used for. You have to have the ability to see that data, delete that data, modify that data. And now there's a law, the CCPA in California, that largely mirrors those rights, but just for Californians. There's nothing like this at the federal level in the U.S. Before COVID, it seemed like we might get strong federal privacy regulation. And it would be a real shame to see the pandemic swing the debate in the opposite direction, right? That it's somehow not the time to think about privacy. We have to sacrifice privacy for public health. We can have both. You can collect data for public health as long as there's rules about how that data can be used, you know, downstream and for other purposes. How different is this really from the location tracking that we already experience? It's not all that different in a lot of respects. If, if this is done using kind of the Google and Apple APIs, it'll be more ubiquitous than, than other forms of tracking, just because it will be on all the time. But it'll have capabilities that other apps don't have. But that said, you know, if your phone is on, cell triangulation also works all the time. There's a knee-jerk reaction that we shouldn't have this kind of tracking, and it's going to lead to government overreach. But in a very real sense, we've already given up this privacy. You're already walking around with a cell phone, which is the greatest tracking device ever developed. So maybe we should be using this data to implement these kind of public health measures so we can you know, get back to normal life sooner and save people's lives.
So another thing I want to talk about is facial recognition's role in contact tracing. So in other countries like China, facial recognition has been a big way for the government to do contact tracing. Can you explain how that works and why it's been an effective method? Well, so I think this has been effective in China because they have a pre-existing system of wide-scale surveillance. So there's cameras everywhere in the major cities, and they are largely networked into kind of a central infrastructure. So the authorities have access to all of that footage. And then it's at that point, it's pretty easy to layer facial recognition on top of it. So you match what the cameras are seeing with you know state records like ID cards. And then you know, you know where people were at what time. Uh, so if you know there was an infected person in front of this store, you pull up the footage and you say, okay, there they are. And here's all the people around them. Uh, and then you work backwards to find those people. Do you think that's something the U.S. will implement? I think it would be more challenging to do here, although not impossible. Um, so there is a lot of video surveillance in this country. You know, every store has cameras inside and outside. So at least in like major cities, there is large coverage of video. The difficulty is that it's all owned by private individuals, right? There's no central database that's collecting all of this footage. So if we really wanted to do that here, the government would have to intervene in some way and either get access to all those private cameras or alternatively install their own you know, surveillance dragnets with cameras everywhere. And now with everyone wearing masks, there's this added obstacle for facial recognition to identify people. How are facial recognition systems getting around this? Yeah. So originally when this, the research was being done to develop facial recognition machine learning tools, you know, it was based on full faces. But in places like Asia where, you know, face masks are, are common and they were before COVID, you know, this immediately was a stumbling block for the systems. But it actually turns out to not be that big of a stumbling block. So if you look at how these systems are built, you have a big database of faces and you use that to train the machine learning. Well, you just take those images and you add, you know, like a square over the bottom of someone's mouth to simulate a mask. You retrain the system and it's able to learn to identify that person again, just based on basically the features around their eyes and the bridge of their nose. So now you can deploy a system that is resilient against masks. And that seems to work very well in practice. Yeah, it's a hard balance to strike because obviously we want to do the socially responsible thing and share our information, but we haven't exactly been set up to trust that our information is actually being used for good or even being used for the things that they say they're going to use our information for. I'm sure there are some technologists who say, you know, once the cat is out of the bag, right, like facial recognition exists, so we can't regulate it away. And I, I think that's, a, that's completely false. Just because the algorithm exists in theory, that's very different than a company having a big fat database of faces that they're actively selling access to. I mean, they're an entity that exists and they can be regulated <laughs> and they should. Special thanks to Christo Wilson, Associate Professor of Computer Science and a member of the Cybersecurity and Privacy Institute. Sound editing and mixing by Anthony Polito. Our editor is David Filipov. From News at Northeastern, this is Litmus. For more COVID-19 stories, subscribe to our show and you'll get a notification every time we release a new episode. Thanks for listening.